Options activity has altered the investment landscape. Get an edge on this massive flow of funds with Tier 1 Alpha's Market Situation Report brought to you by Hedgeye. A daily newsletter of the latest moves in the options market and a weekly webcast featuring myself, Mike Green of Simplify Asset Management, and Tier 1 Alpha's Craig Peterson and David Pegler. Go to hedgeye.com research for more information. Thanks for listening to the Hedgeye Investing Summit, featuring conversations with some of the sharpest minds in investing. To get access to the other eight Hedgeye Investing Summit conversations and for more great investing content, go to hedgeye.com. I'm Keith McCullough, and welcome back to day three. I get to stand up for this uh, this part of it. I just learned something from our new guest, Art Hyde, that uh, Howard Stern has something that he does that I don't do, which is he doesn't talk to his guests before it starts. Because when you talk to your guests before it starts, then you have to have a repeated conversation, right? <laughs> so thank you for... You know, that, I hope I didn't throw you off there. And I thought I was going to learn, you know, I, we, I, we, I will learn, and you will learn about you know why we're long uranium, but uh, I learned that too. Uh, Segra, I also learned the name of your firm is named after... Uh, the word victory in Sweden? In, in Swedish, exactly. So my partner Adam is Swedish, and we decided to be like the one hedge fund that wasn't named after a rock stream or, you know, et cetera. <laughs> so, so we do have to explain it almost every meeting, though. Good. So Tell your partner I'm short Sweden. Uh, EWD <laughs> is the ETF for that. Uh, <laughs> We've been short Swedish housing on and off, so I'm, I'm right there with it's you. Good. I mean, it's interesting. That economy is actually, I mean, uh, what could possibly go wrong? Germany and, and Sweden, for example, are already in reported recessions, but... Wall Street's going to debate whether or not we're going to have one. Well, we can talk about it, but I mean, European energy crisis is kind of a, a, ta- a headwind for any of those economies, and I don't think that's changing anytime soon, unless they build nuclear. Yeah, well, that um, that's really the the point of of this conversation. And for all of you, we've never um, met, certainly not on our channel, uh, met Art or his firm. And that's I want to dig into your firm first, just so that we establish, like we did yesterday, if we have a new guest, you know, who are these people? Can you trust them? What's their process? And then we get into We'll get into nuclear, of course, and, and uranium. But um, so how long ago have you guys been in business, or when did you start it? So Segura was founded about 10 years ago. Oh, wow. Yep. So we've been in business 10 years. Uh, we're a small firm, four people. So there's me, um, Adam, my colleague. We co-manage investments. And we have a nuclear engineer on staff that helps us with some of the more technical work we do. And then an ops person. That's yeah, it. Cool. So, so it's um, tight. So yeah, it, it is tight. It started 10 years ago. But, I mean, the firm kind of started 20 years ago. So Adam and I were college roommates at Amherst, mm. randomly assigned freshman roommates. We kind of went through Amherst. Uh, it was 06, 07 when we came out. And so classically, like anybody in that period, went to investment banking. <laughs> and uh, Adam didn't like investment banking very much. I think he was there for like eight months. <laughs> and then he left to go to a firm called Corriente Capital. Oh, yeah. You know, Mark Hart. Yeah. So, so great firm, white paper approach, really outside-the-box thinker. Did a lot of SPVs. We can kind of talk about how we brought that into our DNA. I went to J.P. Morgan for seven or eight years, covered energy, utilities, infrastructure, a bunch mm. of different roles. Sell side or buy side? Uh, I was always in the investment bank. Okay. So like a bunch of different desks, mostly credit and fixed income. Mm-hmm. Adam had the opposite. It was commodities, equities. Mm. And so in 2013, he left Mark, went out, and Mark actually helped seed us and started Segra. Oh, cool. He reached out to me like six months later and was like, hey, I'm starting a firm. Do you want to leave the bank? And I said, of course I do. And so uh, we've worked together ever since. That's, that's, that's the way to do it. I mean, yeah. there's so many ways not to do it, like having lived my, the first part of my career in the hedge fund business. We're here for that matter. I always say to people when we first hire them, I'm like, look, if it doesn't go the way that you want, or moreover, if it really, goes really well and a hedge fund's trying to hire you, 
can you just give me a heads up? You know, what if I offered you a million dollars to say? You'd want to know, like at least do it for that. But but actually do it. That's a joke, obviously, and a bad one. But uh, maybe not. But it's 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 do it because in principle. You want to do good by the people that have done good by you and give you an opportunity. So that's you don't hear that all the time, uh, in terms of you know the actual guy funding you, yep. uh, while you're saying I'm leaving. <laughs> yeah, no, 100 percent. Like a lot of credit goes to Mark. He's he's still close to us and he's he's a phenomenal investor. I would say, you know, but but it wasn't a no-brainer. You know, I left a very cushy, pretty sleepy job at J.P. Morgan <laughs> that I could have been in for a very long time. And I remember leaving, and you know, I talked to my dad, who's actually a big fan of the show. And, oh, really? and, a, and a big subscriber, and cool. he said, listen, uh, if you're going to take this risk, you're going to leave your career and even go to a startup, yeah. you're going to have to trust somebody no matter what. Mm-hmm. You've known Adam your whole life. Like, if you're going to trust somebody, go out and try this with him. So I've been really lucky. I mean, 10 years with your best friend trying to invest and build a business, and it's been awesome. Yeah, I mean, the first couple of years, I mean, it's not easy. I mean, when you make that leap. I mean, you're cushy. I, first guy on a, on a real conversation to call his job at J.P. Morgan cushy. Uh, how's that? <laughs> uh, but, we, you know, it's, it's a grind. I mean, J.P. Morgan's a grind. But it, it's certainly a different compensation structure than just betting on yourself. And this is what a lot of people should appreciate. I mean, people that start funds, start firms, and take positions. I mean, you guys, your family just won't do well if you don't do well with your research in your invested positions. <laughs> That's I, it. I, I will be honest in saying it's a lot easier before you have kids. But but you're right. Like you need to take risk. You need to balance it. And I think you need to figure out you know, why is this going to work. What can what are you going to do differently that's going to have you succeed? Mm-hmm. And especially for I mean, there's a million people that come on shows like this and say, "Don't go start a hedge fund when you're 27." And there's a lot of really good reasons for that, right? There's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of stories that don't succeed. I think we did things differently. I think we took a different approach, and I think that's why we're still here. Yeah, that's awesome. Congrats. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, it's, so the, the experience with nuclear, is, is that been a perpetual, like something from day one, or something that's just so happens that you'd be interested in the last couple of years? No, so I'll, I'll, I'll give you a little history on how we got here without trying to go too deep. So um, we ran a generalist long-short hedge fund, kind of best ideas, very thematic, from 20, 2013 to 2018. Mm-hmm. The whole concept was we wanted idea generate, and we wanted to bring new trades that our allocators were not seeing. Mm-hmm. And so it was a go anywhere, um, you know, really bottoms up white paper approach. Yep. Could we find something that was out of favor, and could we isolate a few key reasons why it was not being invested in, why the market was being inefficient? Um, the result of that, um, and again, being young guys that I guess didn't know how to program program <laughs> a product that was saleable to allocators is that we had a very eclectic mix. We were long Pakistan cement companies, <laughs> early stage nuclear companies. I love it. We were long Indonesian telecom, Iraqi oil field credit. It was a really interesting hedge fund. And so what we ended up being known for is being kind of these idea guys out of Dallas. And most of our investors at the time were like, well, they're hedge fund managers. Yeah. And they do the classic thing, which is they give you a little bit of money, and then they'd love your research, and they put it on themselves. And you know, nothing, to, nothing negative to our early LPs. But like, we ended up being almost like an idea incubator for five years. Yeah. And so we sat there. And even though I really liked our process, we kind of realized that when we went to pitch a big allocator, pitching all of these ideas in one basket was a hard sell. Yeah. You know, where do they bucket us? How do they think about us? We're not really a long short. We're very thematic. Um, we wanted to be uncorrelated. Like if we brought you an idea and you had it in another part of your book, we were not doing our job right. Right. That was the whole thesis. One of our LPs came to us and said, "Listen, you're doing the most differentiated work on nuclear. Mm. We think you guys are the only ones doing it. You're doing really deep fundamental write-ups. You're integrating into the industry. You know, we can talk about how we've done that, but 
you know, this is something we're not seeing from others. Mm -hmm. Can we supersize this in an SPV? Oh, cool. This is in 2018? This is around 2018. Yeah. So we sat back and we said, listen, um, we are by far the most convicted in this trade. Mm -hmm. As analysts, we can add the most value to this trade. Mm -hmm. And Adam had been at Corriente where he had a history of taking an idea, creating an SPV around it, mm -hmm. and then raising capital separately for it. So we kind of had it in our DNA to pursue this type of structure. And so we closed the main fund, which is a big choice. We went to our current LPs and said, listen, we're just going to go nuclear. Well. I know that sounds interesting. <laughs> um, you can take your capital with us and you can put as much as you want in the new fund, but this is what we're pursuing. And we raised money through 18 and into 19, deployed most of that capital in the uranium fuel cycle through the summer of 19, and we've been doing that ever since. Hmm. Yeah. That is, that, I mean, that, that's, uh, it brings me back to like Harry Schwefel and I, who's now at point seventy two. I don't know if you know who he is, but you know, very successful guy. Um, we started our hedge fund Falcon Hedge. We left the big one and we went to uh, start our own. Or there, uh, ironically enough, there are four of us. Yeah, <laughs> we're sitting there, and we had this strategy that was very concentrated. It was also go anywhere. And I remember those meetings where you just didn't fit in the box that the allocators wanted. You 100%. were just like. It's like, well, why don't you chase price instead of fading price? Why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? I'm like, well, are you looking to invest in something different? And what you realize at that point is that the hedge fund industry, that was kind of the beginning of this real concentration or neutering of, you know, everybody wanted the same kind of look to a hedge fund. Yep. And today, like, I, I, I can't say that it looks any more neutered unless you're running, like, with wanton abandoned gross levered long, like some people were going into the 2022 beatdown in growth. But you don't, like, it's really unique to find somebody who's got a niche, who's willing to take a real swing, you know, swing around their nets. Uh, I, I want to ask you about that next. Actually, I'm going to ask you right now. Like, do you, do you structure it that way as well, or do you stay with this, okay, I'm going to run neutral? You know I mean, it's like no, an no. explicit bet on nuclear. Why the hell would I want to be neutral? Yeah, so, so, so we have a lot of leeway, right? So if you think about our, our market, I'll tell you about our nets, but let me maybe start what we looked at when we entered the market. Mm -hmm. So in 2018, you were seven years post-Fukushima. There was literally no sell-side coverage. There was, there was analysts, but you're talking about two types of analysts on the sell-side, and I know you like to rag on the sell-side, so you're <laughs> going to love this. So there was either analysts that had been covering the uranium miners since pre-Fukushima, and they were pissed off. What year was Fukushima? Uh, 2011. Okay. So, so they had covered the boom last cycle, and then for seven years, which you know, to an analyst is you know, half a career, yeah, exactly. they had gotten no questions on nuclear. They were pissed. They still had to run a model on Camco. They spent 5 to 10% of their time on the market. They did no primary research. And so there was these gray hairs that I think had basically said, this industry is a melting ice cube and it's going away. Mm -hmm. And they were done doing work on it. <laughs> On, on the other side, you had these 24-year-old sell-side analysts that like really wanted to cover gold or anything else in the commodity spectrum <laughs> and got relegated to uranium because you know, they were young on the totem pole. And so in terms of who were we competing against when we were trying to create a differentiated view, it was a pretty wide open market. Yeah. Um, so so we, started, we started doing real primary work. We basically made the decision that if we're going to dedicate to this, we want to join the industry. We joined groups like the World Nuclear Association, uh, Nuclear Energy Institute. We started doing like deep academic research with them. <laughs> Those guys are probably like, who the hell are these guys? <laughs> well, it's even better than that. So, so the, the first conferences we went to in like 2017, 2018, we would show up and people were like, why are you here? Like literally, so, so Westinghouse had just gone bankrupt. So everybody kind of thought, 
we were restructuring guys. They kind of thought we were the vultures waiting to see who's going to die next. Bankers. Yeah. And so they, they, they had no context for why an investor would show up at a conference. If you ever want to see an industry that's interesting from the long side, <laughs> that's your setup, right? I had the story to interrupt, but yeah. I mean, I, you're giving me flashbacks. When I started John Dawson, my boss, in 2002, 2003, he was like kind of listening to me a little bit on getting long gold mining stocks. And then so they're starting to work. You're coming out of the recession, typical spot where gold can work or hard assets, which we're going to get into, uh, yep. will work. And um, so I go to the PDAC conference, oh. the Prospectors Development Association conference in Toronto, Ontario. So I'm like going home. Like I'm, it's the first conference that I actually get to go to in Canada. I was not kidding because I was like in my mid twenties. I I was twenty five years younger than the next guy. Yep. They're smoking darts in the meetings and so like it was like a total. I was like, this is edge. Like you knew it by just being there. <laughs> you're giving me content because um, so you're not a Star Wars fan, are you? Yeah, yeah. So I call PDAC the most Eisley spaceport. You've never seen a greater hive of scum and villainy. <laughs> It's like the scummiest place on earth. And the yeah. best thing about going to PDAC is there's always some commodity yeah. that's just going to the moon. Exactly. And those guys are in these flashy suits and throwing the parties. Yeah. And then there's these three other commodities that are down the dumps. And those guys are barely hanging out and asking yeah. for capital. And exactly. So you've, you've invested in mining. Yeah. It is an adult swim industry. It always will be. Yeah. Most guys are trying to pick your pocket. You've got to be a little smart on it. And so, again, being a dedicated fund in that type of industry goes a long way. Mm-hmm. So you, you establish all that. Uh, and that's you know that gives a lot of conviction. Like most people today, they'll like, what's going on at the Apple User Conference? I mean, like, like really? Like your your hedge fund is going to be about trading Apple in a neutral book? Yep. Okay, that's a hard thing to do. I mean, what I see in the hedge fund industry today is an extremely hard job. You have to traffic in liquidity in the names that everybody knows, and this is basically the opposite of what you're doing. Yeah. So. I think we're big believers in the idea if you're going to run a business and you're going to earn a fee from somebody, you need to make sure that you're getting paid for the right amount of work, yes. right? That you're actually creating value. Mm-hmm. And so I think the whole founding of Segra was around this premise that nobody should pay us for our view on Apple. Very few people should pay anybody for their view on Apple. It's a well-covered industry, right? Yeah. Um, the inefficiency is, is not great there. So you want to find the most far-flung parts of the market that people don't want to focus mm-hmm. on and can't focus on, right? It's not. So people always look back and they assume that it was an easy trade. So right now uranium is trading at $70. When we launched our fund, it was trading between $18 and $20. The cost of, of um, production, marginal cost of production back then was $70, $75. So like, you're looking at a commodity trading at a third of its, of its cost of, uh, of production. Why wasn't everybody doing this? And the answer is there was no incentive to. Um, like with your, let's. Uh, I'd love to hear how you, how you'd approach this. Let's say you know a commodity has to go up by three or four times, yep. but you don't know when. How do you play it? Mm, well, first I'd risk manage it. I'd look for signal. Yep. Like to me, I need to see like of those three stocks at the PDAC where the guy looks like he's going to croak. Yeah, I need to see those come back to life. I need some entropy, right? I need to see some signal. Yep. And then as soon as I get signal, you'll see that it's pretty much you know you have a, kind of like a wide open canvas. If I, I'd immediately then say to my analysts, I'd say, okay, look, find me anything that ticks that's palladium or linked to palladium. Palladium is a good example because it can get bombed pretty yep. routinely. There are some equities that you can play. Yep. And then I just get them 
to go to work, see where we're at, see what the numbers would look like relative to the cost of production and the current price, and I'd have my own view on price, and we'd put that in the model, and that would be you know the long idea. And it's kind of what we did, but I think we, we didn't have the, the the fancy model that figures out signal and noise, and we right. so we were just that's two, an atypical starting. We point. were just two guys in a room, right? right? Two guys in a room that had done a ton of primary work, right? So we sat there and we said, we need to design a structure to this fund that matches the trade, mm-hmm. right? We weren't going to raise some money and then go put the trade on. We needed to design the fund itself around the trade we were looking at. Yep. Oh, yeah. So, so th- this is where you're, yeah. th- that's why you're asking. So we're going in nets and stuff. Yeah, because I wouldn't. I would never have a view on the price going from. Like I would never like the guys at Sailing Stone would start with cost of production and a three yep. to five year view on price. I think I mean knowing those guys pretty well. Yeah. And um, but me like I'm not the guy that you want running your fund. I mean that's because I'm going to get roped well, you know at some point. Well, so so there's there's maybe two things to dive into. One is um, how did we see the market playing out? Mm-hmm. Uranium's different for a lot of reasons than other commodities, right? So, uranium. Um, can be hypercyclical and very inefficient, yep. and that's due to specific incentives for the buyers and sellers of this commodity. Mm-hmm. So, um, a couple quick points without giving you too much 101. Um, 85% of uranium is bought and sold through bilateral bespoke contracts between buyer and seller. <laughs> There's no futures market to hedge. On an intraday basis, most investors don't even know what the spot price of the commodity is. I mean, there's a quoted bid offer, but there's no volume that's quoted. Um, I will have hedge funds even today um, that will call me and say, what do you think the spot price is right now? And the answer is the only way I know is because I know the six or eight traders that trade this commodity in the market, and I can call them and say, who's in the bid, who's in the offer? Right? Most investors in equity markets can't do that. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about a commodity that intraday, as stocks are moving, you don't know what the price of the commodity is. Right? <laughs> that, that, that is Pretty literally wild. my Pretty experience wild. with this thing. Right? Right? <laughs> I so, get, like, if so I you sh- can refresh Numerica or whatever and it'll quote a bid offer, but there might be nobody really on the bid and nobody really on the offer. And sometimes it's $2 wide and sometimes it's $5 wide. Right? So it's, it's very much wild, wild waste when it comes to commodity analysis. I, I have on my own screens, I'm looking at exactly what he's saying, which is, because I'll trade, I answered the question the way that I trade. I yeah. will trade tin, I will trade palladium, I'll trade uranium. I don't even know why I'm long uranium, which is why we're having the discussion. I don't okay. know shit about uranium, but I do know what my signal thinks about uranium, yeah. and that's good enough for me. But I mean, I'd much prefer to know what you know. But that's one of the few things on my sheets that uh, propanes and other, there, 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 there are things that I can't get, like I'd, I have to wait. And then all of a sudden you're like, well, like to your point, what is spot? So how? So keep going on that. You, there's six so, guys so, that really. Min, th- so I there's six th- or eight people that, that trade this commodity. I mean, they are flow traders. They will make a bid. They will make an offer. And where? I mean, they're sell side brokers, or they're it's at- like traders like a Tochu Marabini, right? Japanese trading houses. Okay. There's specialty traders like a Curzon. But again, because we've been in this industry for five years, and I know these all guys got all on a first name basis. It's pretty easy for us to figure out where the buyers are, where the sellers are, how strong they each feel. Um, it's it's a you know, I'll give you one, one more example, because I think anecdotes sometimes go the longest. Um, last December, there was a three-week period where 200,000 pounds traded in total in the commodity. It ended up being the same trader that bought and sold those pounds to test the market, but we're talking about almost a month going by. Again, this commodity is 10% <laughs> of the global electricity grid and 20% of the U.S. electricity grid, and it doesn't trade for three weeks? There was a bid and offer quoted every day, yeah. but, and, and stocks would move based on the bid and offer quoted, but there was no, nobody really on the bid, nobody really on the offer. 
right? So to figure out where the incremental pounds, if you really wanted to buy it, are, yeah. or the incremental pounds if you want to sell it, like that takes skill. That mm -hmm. takes going in and figuring out, okay, I need to find 300 pounds tomorrow, it's 300,000 pounds tomorrow, where do I find it and at what price? You need to call sources for that. Mm -hmm. You cannot sit there and watch your equity screens. It doesn't give you any information. Who's gonna Who's gonna like maybe give us uh, the top three or five people that will have that kind of tonnage? Oh, it just depends. So it's it. So the it's not people. It's I hundreds, started by right? saying eighty five percent of this market is traded through bilateral bespoke long term contracts. The spot market is kind of the tail wagging the dog. Yeah. Very like there's a lot of trades. There's a lot of pounds that will trade back and forth in the spot market. But real end users don't care about the spot market. Mm. And real producers don't care about the spot exactly. market. It's all the term market. It's much more like a specialty chemical if you've looked at lithium, yeah. where it's really like, I have this coming out of the mine and you need it. We're going to come to a long-term seven, ten-year agreement. And so getting back to like, so it sounds really complicated. Like how could two guys do this? Like why, why is you two guys at Amherst College that were liberal arts majors, why are you the right people to invest in this? It doesn't sound right. Um, I think it does. I but think I'll it's, walk through why. It's great. So, so the flip side of that is that this industry is actually very, very easy to model, meaning that it's unlike any other commodity. I can look out 10 years, and I can know almost to the pound how much, how much uranium we need. Try to go out six months for oil and gas and say exactly how many barrels. Really hard, right? But there's one use for this commodity. There's about 450 civil nuclear reactors in the world. They use the same amount of uranium every year. They reload some of them every 12 months, some of them every 18, some of them every 24. But based on the size of that reactor and uh, a pretty easy to assume capacity factor, I know exactly how much uranium they need. Mm -hmm. The reason I know 10 years out is because if you're going to build a new nuclear reactor, you can start today and for large light water reactors, which is what we have for most of the world, it's probably done in 2030 or 2031. Mm -hmm. So I know exactly how many are coming online because yep. they're already under construction. If I'm going to take one off, there's such big, impactful resources to a grid that you tend to have noticed five to seven years ahead of time. So a great example being Germany. They took their reactors offline. They announced it in 2013. They took their last one off in 2023. And so you have this long lead time where I can say, okay, from 2023 to 2033, how many reactors are going to be online each year? How do they run? How much uranium do they need? Mm -hmm. I like how forecastable that is as an analyst. On the supply side, there's like 40 assets this like a, It's like an annuity. I mean, you can. You, you're gonna, yes, it's pretty sleepy. It's a relative. It's actually what a macro investor should be looking for, which is relatively low vol of the underlying demand. Correct. Because you can just model it. it. Exactly. So, so it's very modelable demand. On the supply side, it's not like there's thousands of assets, right? Right. Like, you know, we used to joke we were Dallas based for a long time. If the natural gas price went to the right level, we could probably drive two hours and. and pop a well, right? We'd be producing in X amount of months. <laughs> These are very concentrated assets in tough parts of the world, generally speaking. Mm -hmm. So uh, Australia, Africa, Central Asia, and North America, that's where all the uranium is, mm -hmm. and it's really concentrated in Central Asia. Mm -hmm. And so building a new mine takes 8 to 12 years. And so if we combine those two things, if it's 8 to 12 years to bring supply on, and I know 10 years ahead of time how much demand is there, this should be the most efficient market in the world, yeah. right? Why doesn't everybody just look at the model? The answer is that there's a big discrepancy in this market between production and consumption and procurement. Mm -hmm. Those do not line up often. You have a boom-bust cycle in procurement where they, people come in, they ramp up inventories, contract coverage, et cetera, and they don't do anything for 10 years, and they come back to market. Mm. So. Um, Anyway, it, it just ends up being a really inefficient market that if you 
have the right framework in place, you can take advantage of. Mm -hmm. And, and you, you, you alluded to your, your fund needs to have mm. the structure, and I asked you about your net. Sorry, yeah. Um, can you explain Going back that? to 2018, right? So we sat there and we basically said, it's 2018 now. We modeled out all the contracts in this market, and we said, there's enough contracts rolling off that this market has to rationalize and see significant capital investment mm -hmm. by 2022. That was our call. Um, at the time, CapEx for new mines from Fukushima levels were down 90%, right? So 90% drop in CapEx is usually a good sign that something's got to change. <laughs> so um, when we went out and raised our initial capital, all of our founding partners gave us a four-year lock. Oh, good. Pretty rare, right? Yeah, very. So they gave us a four-year lock, they allowed us to be long short, and they allowed us to range our nets pretty wide. Mm -hmm. And so we are not married to being long nuclear for the rest of our careers. Mm -hmm. Uh, and specifically, I, I think I'm a pretty big nuclear bull, but I'm, I know how commodity cycles work. They tend to solve themselves. And so being a long-short fund, not being, hey, we are long this commodity in perpetuity, being able to ramp our nets up, ramp our nets down, allow us to take advantage of a very volatile market. And we can talk about why it's volatile, but our nets can be as low as 40% long. In this spring, when we were incredibly bullish, we had 95% nets. Wow. Right? And, and that's okay with our that's LPs. Good. They want us to be able to move our exposures. Mm -hmm. That's great. I mean, yeah. again and again and again, it's like we've neutered this business down to a place where it shouldn't have never gone. But it's, we get it. It's a, you know, if you're running a mothership, you want to get those management fees, you want to have a relatively low vol profile. Yeah. Like what you're doing, for me, for my capital, if I'm going to allocate to something other than what I do myself, I want somebody who's going to, if, they're, if that's your, where you're going to take a cut, I want that cut. Right? Like that's, like a, that's, that's about as wide. You, you sound like my buddy Mike Taylor, who's yesterday he's pinging me. He's like, I'm 55% net short, Keith. <laughs> he's the craziest on the short side. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you know him, but, but that's, uh, I'm very happy to hear that. Did, and, and the four-year lock was off the 2018 or no? That's right. So actually, the lock was based on a fundamental. So everything we do is fundamental. Yep. Um, so in 2018, we ran the numbers on how contracts were rolling off. So the major contracts in this market, again, most buying is done through these super long contracts. You could see them roll off in 2018, 19, 2021. And so we said, you need supply rationalization. Because yep. the suppliers, to be clear, were not selling at spot. When spot got to 18, the suppliers were selling into long-term contracts. And so as soon as you started to see those roll off, ended up working out really well, mm -hmm. you saw the contracts roll off, and you saw all the suppliers start to be disciplined. So Camco, one of the largest suppliers, um, I'm supposed to disclose everything that we have a position in, we are along that stock. Mm -hmm. um, we, they started to pull some of the best producing mines offline, right? As soon when? as that contract book, in 2018. In 2018, right. right? So right when we were launching our fund. The Kazakhs, who are the long, lowest cost producer in the world, um, there's a company called Gazadamprom, also along that company. They um, are the entire lowest quartile of the cost curve. Mm. Um, they're 45% of global production, 40%. Um, depending on the year. So they started pulling Along in. that in the local market? Uh, in London. Okay, in London, oh, good. ADR. Yeah. So, so they started pulling production back, 20% cuts in production. So you saw, so two players in this market control 60% of production. Hmm. Name a commodity market more concentrated than that, <laughs> right? And, 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 and two-thirds of that, 40% of that, is based in Kazakhstan, right? So when we look at this market, there's supplier concentration, which tends to lead to price cyclicality, and there's also geographical risk that makes geopolitics a big driver of value. Yep. So, you know, again, just things we like in our market. So they both started to pull down supply in 2018. When that happened, we gained conviction. We dropped our lock from four years to two years, and then now it's at one year. So, again, we're, we're happy to you know, 
go to our LPs every year and say why, why we retain the capital. Yeah. But at the time of our initial trade, it was just hard to see when that rationalization was going to start to take place. Mm-hmm. And so we, we asked people for a four-year lock in line with fundamentals. I mean, what a, what a ride, Cameco, from just take out the pandemic low, but I mean, from 2018 to where, where, where it's at today, just looking at that, I mean, it, there are very few things that actually look like that. And there are very few things that lo- have looked like even URA or URNM, which would be like the macro kind of ETF expression yep. of this that a lot of people have, us included, where in the face of like a 13% drawdown in the Russell 2000, which, you know, I know everybody still says it's a bull market, but that's, you know, I'm old enough to remember July, yep. uh, from July, uranium, like literally, it's like you talk about signal. There's something, and, and what the market's very good at doing from a macro perspective is differentiating structural and secular within versus cyclical. You know, yeah. so what it's saying there is it's like, okay, you dummies chased the NASDAQ, you want to chase the Russell in July, I'll show you where the real cycles are at, which would be something like this. I, I would have never guessed that. I'm not in the business of guessing, I'm just yeah. of doing. So that to me, it's like, um, and I believe that there's an efficiency in that. I believe that, I didn't know who you were, but I believe that there are humans like you out there doing this work somewhere. And there's a place called Kazakhstan, and somebody's, yeah. somebody knows something all the time. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just a question of like how you want to structure your entry and exit, right? And yeah. I think our pitch was we're okay being early because of where we are. I mean, the stocks that we invested in were down 95% from their pre-Fukushima highs. And you can sit there and say that's a no-brainer, but picking bottoms is never a good practice no, generally. No, no. Especially right? in commodities. I remember, so we had two big questions from LPs when we first launched. One of them was, you guys are fundamentally convicted and you're doing real work, but let's say the market disagrees with you for another year. Yeah. Let's say a year from now you're down 20% and the fundamentals are just getting better and you're increasing in conviction, but you're losing money. How are you guys going to deal with that? And our honest answer was, if that's the scenario, we're going to come ask you for more money. Mm-hmm. And some LPs like that answer and some LPs hate that answer, right? Because yeah. our whole idea is that if this commodity does not rationalize, so much of the global electricity grid is tied up in it that mm-hmm. you run into major problems. It's interesting. Like I, I cited Sailing Stone. I'm sure they wouldn't mind. I mean, we've yeah. highlighted some of their work on our contributor page. We've spoken um, to them in the past. They're great. Yeah. Mackenzie Davis yeah. is awesome. You, actually, you, you, you guys kind of look the same. <laughs> but, he's, uh, you know, but that's the answer. Yeah. Like if you're committed to this and of the view that, you know, which I want to ask you next, because that, like now in hindsight, like every LP that you have, like I, I loathe people who don't have a process, never mind people who don't stay with their process. Yeah. But you had a repeatable process, you had an edge, you executed on it. But from here, yeah. you know, it's like this fits what I like because quad three is stagflation, pays the heart. It's just like actually investing in gold miners, but pick nuclear in 2002 to 2003. Yeah. Because the winners in a new, like when you come out of a bubble, like 1999, 2000, 2001, the next bull market is, you know, sorry to rain on their party at CNBC all the time with these seven stocks, but the next bull market is never led by the former bull market. Yeah, and that's exactly the last, I mean, the entire REIT space came to be out of 2002. You know, gold, look at gold mining, being long gold miners from 02 to 2011's yep. highs. Yep. You know, so if we're going into this world where quad three stagflation and, and hard assets, higher levels of inflation, higher costs of capital, how does that look? I know that's just my view of it. You're, you're going to have energy transition. You're going to have you know, energy security. There's big topics. There's all these flows. I would say when we think about it, one, nuclear as a, as a part of the energy transition is coming to the fore more and more, right? It's becoming right. a bigger part of it. In terms of flows, I would say that um, 
mining in general has had a horrible run. Brutal. Right? So we were just talking about how like there's not a lot of mining PMs, there's not a lot of expertise in this sector. <laughs> that hasn't really changed. That's good for us, right, as a yeah. sector expert. I would say that um, if we step back and we think about, um, there's a lot of cheap opportunities out there. I always look for, is it cheap and is the buyer base growing? Mm-hmm. The number of people that can buy nuclear stocks today versus five years ago is totally different. Oh, right? yeah. It's becoming part of the solution, so you're seeing clean energy buyers come in for the first time. So I think like the buyer base of this market has legs. What I've been surprised by is the lack of progress in the supply side. We've taken uranium from $20 to $70, and we really haven't made much progress in terms of bringing new pounds to market. Mm-hmm. We've talked a little bit about geopolitics, but a big part of what's interesting about this space is reinvigorating Western fuel cycle, mm. right? So um, you have 60% of global uranium come from Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Russia. Mm-hmm. Russia controls a lot of the enrichment and conversion process that's essential to bring that material to the West. Mm-hmm. Um, if we're going to have Western demand fulfilled, it's going to need to come from Western production. And despite being at $70, we are just not seeing many assets come online. We're seeing scale-up issues in single assets in the U.S. We're seeing coups in Niger, which is a core uranium producer, taking supplies offline. Mm -hmm. So when you think about the places you can go as a fuel buyer, they're smaller than they were three years ago, not larger, despite the price tripling. And any and geopolitical situation with Russia being the most obvious can, is going to make that tighter, faster, on a very short-term basis. 100%. And, right. and if you think about um, all the other dynamics just impacting all of mining, none of them make the price lower or make assets easier to develop. Right. right? So, like, energy costs are going up. If you think about the ESG movement and the concept of building new assets in places like Canada and the U.S., you're engaging with indigenous people, you're signing these long-term impact benefit agreements, the process uh, and the cost structure of these mines is going up simply because the environmental footprint cannot be the same as it was in the 80s the last time we built these mines. And so what you're seeing is across the board inflationary factors. Um, And then you have an inefficient market where a lot of cost estimates on this market are four, five, seven years old. They're old PEAs, old PFSs. So our argument is that the cost curve is actually a lot higher than most people think. Mm -hmm. And the result of that is that we're going to have an elongated price cycle. I think the buyer base is just coming around to that. And our question is not necessarily what's the spot price of the commodity. It's when have we incentivized enough supplies and enough new mines? Like when have we actually hired folks to go out and build these assets? Because that's the, that's the first sign that the market's starting to heal. Yeah. We're just, it seems like we're miles away from it. So, so you don't really have to have a pie in the sky, or actually it wouldn't be pie in the sky, it'd be like World War III type view on this, you know, this, the demand side going somewhere like completely nonlinear. You, your, your supply side story is plenty tight, and if that, well, what is the view on that? Do you have to have a view on that, on well, the demand side? The demand side is already, is, so the demand side right now, out to 2030, I know. Yeah, you know, it's the not demand, going up or down. I mean, in terms of like um, like a broad acceptance where everybody in an ESG is like, oh, of course we're long nuclear, it's clean. I mean, that's not where we're at. I mean, PMs, you said this before, I mean, the, the average size position that somebody will have in Cameco might be 1%, 2% of their book. Was, we were talking that I mean, before, before we kicked off. Said, I mean, so here's what we like about being an active trader in this space with the ability to go long and short and being hyper-focused on fundamentals. Like, we, we've done three big site tours this year to big assets. Mm-hmm it's like four funds show up, right? You're talking about the biggest uranium assets in the world. One of the mines that my colleague Adam was at produces enough uranium in that mine and mill to power 10% of the U.S. electricity grid in that one facility, right? Where is this? In, in northern Canada, Saskatchewan. Okay. So 
Um, so we go to these, and there's just not investors, right? They're not there yet. They're not. They haven't figured it out. Yeah. So, um, so again, I think I think they will, but we're still miles away. We're still at the 101 stuff. Like, what is nuclear? How investor do you- demand. I mean, that's super low. <laughs> well, investor demand's a wild card, right? We yeah. don't model any investor demand. But no. I would say it doesn't take a rocket scientist to look at its supply and demand over the next 10 years and back into the fact that we come into an issue if we can't get a lot of assets off the ground at the same time. Yeah. Unfortunately, this industry does not have a history of bringing on production successfully. In the last bull market, uranium prices went from you know, $10 to 140 Outside of Kazakh's ramp up, there was basically like one commercial asset that got brought online. Um, crazy? Yeah, it is crazy. <laughs> um, but but we're looking now at like a much more durable demand profile and a much, I would say, more questionable supply side. And we're still not seeing assets funded. They're not getting um, enough contracts to de-risk the project. Um, so again, I think we need to. Like the problem needs to be solved, but it's a bigger problem than most people understand. Mm-hmm. And so I think the cost curve probably goes higher than people think. Hmm. Is there anyone on the sell side who gets it? Is there an analyst on Cameco? For the sell example? side's gotten a lot better, I'll be honest. I, yeah. they're, they're coming up the curve. Um, I'll give you one more sell side story because I, I think you like it. Um, <laughs> in 2018, we launched. I was, uh, we were compiling all the sell side models. That's one of the things you do as an analyst. You kind of go through all the models and you see where you disagree. And we ended up figuring out that 90% of the sell side models were taking supply and demand figures from a consultant called the UXC or another consultant called TradeTech and copying and pasting the, the models. So they weren't doing any bottoms-up analysis on supply or demand. Hmm. Uh, maybe on supply they model the mines, but demand was literally a cut and paste. Fine. So you figure out where you disagree with that consensus, and if you disagree with it enough, you're better than 90% of the, the street. Great. On the demand side, there was one analyst, Canadian Bank, and I looked at his demand numbers, and I was like, this doesn't make any sense. Where's he getting these? Asked for the model. It was 2018. He had cut and pasted World Nuclear Fuel Cycle, this, this um, industry report, demand numbers from their 2015 report. The report only comes out every two years, so there was a new one in 2017, he had just missed it. But that report, which we are on the subcommittee of and we draft now, the latest one came out in September, <laughs> that report was as of year-end 2014 numbers. So you had a sell-side analyst with a price target sending out a supply and demand model to his clients using 2014 estimates in 2018. That's how inefficient it was. Compared to that, the analysts are better. But I still don't think there's much primary work going on. I mean. I, I, I like a lot of them, um, and they're trying to get their feet under them, but this is not a core competency of anybody. <laughs> Good. I'm going to see if we have any uh, competent questions here. By the way, if you have any uh, questions, pop them in the queue. Um, I know this guy, so he's going to have a good question, I think. Um, John, uh, John Cramp, uh, let's see, it's, let's see yeah, it's, it's, it's Camp Rath asking this question. Um, what are the trends in nuclear waste disposal and recycling, and, and what timely opportunities for investing are found there? You know, it's interesting. So our, our new fund, the way that we've uh, structured it is a hybrid vehicle where we can do privates. Yeah. Um, so we how have... Much, uh, how much of your fund can be in privates? So the, we've just... So we were closed for like three and a half years. Yeah. We closed in 19. We just reopened um, because it's a very capital-constrained yeah. opportunity set. Like, we cannot run over a certain amount or else we have to be relegated to playing liquid plays. We don't want to do that. Yeah. So um, in the new fund structure... We can go to select privates, and it's up to the LP to say, I want 10% of my investment to oh, wow. potentially go. So they can ratchet up and ratchet down exactly how much exposure they have to the private markets. You Amherst guys are pretty good at uh, structuring your fund, by the way, man. I, I hope. We'll see. <laughs> uh, uh, but I will say, in waste, it's really interesting. Like Because the industry has viewed 
nuclear, sorry, the world has viewed nuclear power as kind of a melting ice cube in the West specifically. I mean, mm-hmm. we've been grow- growing like a weed in, in Asia and emerging markets. But in the West, we, we haven't thought about it as a growth market. There's all these really interesting technologies that were never pursued. Mm-hmm. And so um, we've looked at a lot of companies in uh, end-of-life uh, uh, plant decommissioning, in waste disposal, in waste reprocessing. Some of these new nuclear reactors that we're most excited about, they actually can run on spent nuclear fuel. And the end result of that is a much smaller waste footprint. And so the answer is, I think a lot of those opportunities exist. Most of them are in private markets. Mm -hmm. Um, You've seen a few opportunities go public via SPAC lately. I actually think there's going to be a bunch of go publics in this space the next three to five years, whether it be a SPAC or traditional route. Because now the demand is there. Mm -hmm. The customers are starting to build new units again, starting to think about investment. And the end result is that that there's a lot of really interesting technologies that have been around since the 50s and 60s that are going to get actually commercialized and and have operating cash flowing businesses for the first time. How many of these are going to, I mean, it's not a number, but how much fraud are you going to see if we start seeing? Tons. Yeah. So so the way we think about it. And you short nuclear frauds, I assume, if you were to see one. We are very long (laughs) short. And I think that's, again, something that that we're most excited about. I mean, at this point in the cycle, we're quite constructive on uranium and and fuel cycle fundamentals. But again, like any market, this will get overheated, it will run too far, we will short it on the back end. Mm -hmm. Like, our whole point is that we don't need to be married to any one part of the thesis, we just want to have an edge in investing in these companies, whether Mm -hmm. it's long side or short side. So when we think about our fund life, we will probably move on to the next thing when we think we've lost our edge. Mm -hmm. If If we're right about this, there will be a nuclear analyst at every major energy shop. And at that point, we probably shouldn't be doing this. We'll move on to the next trade. Um, <laughs> but, but, but we see fraud, like you see fraud in two parts yeah. of the market, right? Overcapitalized aspects of the market, like mm-hmm. I would say like clean hydrogen, there's a lot of frauds in that part of the world. And then undercapitalized parts of the market like nuclear, both of them have fraud for different reasons. One's you know, willing to lie because they need the capital, and the other is you know, not being held to account. They have too much capital, they can say whatever they want. Yeah, my, it's interesting, Van. Do you know Jay Van Skyver? He runs our industrial research group. I haven't met him yet. He, um, I mean, there's a whole cult, hydrogen cult, right? I mean, and um, there have been frauds. I mean, they've been prosecuted already, publicly listed frauds. And he gets, he, I think he's doing a call with a company today that you know, they're like, well, why do you have to be so bearish on hydrogen, you know, clean hydrogen? And it's like, and he's like, look, dude, I just made a comment because our, our, our morning research meeting is on this thing called the call where people can listen in. Okay. Our subscribers. So if you, you know, people are what they are, right? Like if that's your business, you're in clean hydrogen, or if you're in nuclear, you're going to have, you know, you're going to be tied to that to a degree. Sure. So, um, do you do you know it immediately when you see it? When you see a some some stock that's breaking out that's got new a nuclear tagline on it? You know, I think we're pretty selective. Um, I, I think that so so the way I'll, I'll kind of run through how we manage our portfolio. We uh, have eight to 12 longs at a given time, very concentrated. So a large position for us could be 20% of the fund, right? So, so that's by design. We do not want to mirror an index, URA, et cetera. No. Single stock selection is a core part of our value proposition, so we want to swing. Yep. Um, the way that we offset that concentration is by being very flexible with our hedging book. So mm-hmm. two types of shorts. One would be single name catalyst-driven shorts. We don't really short on valuation. You know, this industry can be hyper-volatile and can have very high correlations when it's running up or down. Yeah. And so we don't think like pairs trading is a very good use of our balance sheet. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we think that there's 
uh, a mining update, a cost update, a geopolitical shift, we're more than happy to put single name shorts on. Yeah. In addition to that, we can hedge with more liquid ways. So we could be super bullish on uranium. When we, talk about, we can talk about why we think uranium is uncorrelated to the rest of the metal space. But we can be bullish on that and bearish on commodity flows. Mm -hmm. So we can put XME hedges on. You know, there's a lot of ways we can manage our book, and that allows us to, that, that risk management allows us to stay long what will be a volatile cycle. Does your short book have to be matching in the sense that it's, it's aligned with nuclear, or can you be anything resources? It's got to be correlated, right? So, so we will generally not like short an oil-related stock, yep. but like XME, our names can trade very correlated to that, right? So that, that's a great example where like if metals and mining broadly are trading off because of recessionary concerns, for mm -hmm. example, in Q1, Q2, uh, a lot of the commodity space got wrecked. Uranium, when you talk about this, does not care about GDP. Like, <laughs> no, it didn't. It was, no, it was a but, wild ride. But it shouldn't, fundamentally. Like, you need X amount of uranium in these facilities regardless of what GDP is. They don't scale up. They don't scale down. They run 94% of the time in the U.S. That's the reason I like it, because I can be worried about a recession. And my demand profile does not change. Well, it has the same attributes. It actually has better attributes than the... the I call them MM7, like the magnificently manipulated seven stocks. You know, what people are really expressing there is one, safety, and yep. two, liquidity, not in any order. You know, but what you're, when you really think about a quad three stagflation environment, what, what happens is you get margin compression, you get multiple compression. Warren Buffett struggled with this throughout the 1970s and finally just said, fuck it, I'm going to buy the whole company because I'm going to own the cash flows. And I'm going to own the cash flows that I understand that I have visibility on. So what ends up happening in quad three is that those most visible cash flow streams, which are all of a sudden that didn't, it wasn't utility stocks, it wasn't REIT stocks because they were rate sensitive. It, it became uranium, nuclear, because that's the visibility. Whether people understand how smart the machine is or not, it found you guys. It found your longs. Well, and if you look at what's happening in our market today, there's a certain amount of that, right? So if you look at the relative performance between producing assets and pre-production development assets, the spread's the highest it's been since the cycle started. Okay. And I think a little bit of that is the market telling you that cash flow, as you can see, from uranium you know is coming out of the ground, yep. is a premiumly priced product to uranium that's in the ground that someday will come out. Mm -hmm. Now, as the cycle progresses, I think we've looked at enough metal cycles to say that you know, different aspects of the, the production base lead over time, and sometimes developers kind of kick to the top. But I would say right now, there is a risk bias to say I want cash flowing producing companies like a Campco. Yeah, that's um, it's it's right on the screws. Like if you're trying to construct a macro, a diversified asset allocation uh, you know, profile, they sh people should be. I mean, now that you're open again, maybe you get more calls. But the fact of the matter, and it sounds like you don't need them. But the but you always do. You know, you can always get more capital. But people just um, the further we go into it, because quad three is not something that we just think is like something that's going to go away next quarter. Right. It, I mean, if you really start to go through a decade of this structurally and economically, which you can with the debt and deficit situation, yep. um, I, th I think we found the right guy to talk to. So. Well, and what, what do those higher rates do, right? If you have higher inflation and higher rates, yeah. like the, the thing that gets difficult is building new mines. Exactly, the right? cost of capital. And so what ends up happening is, like people ask us all the time, if we go into a financial crisis tomorrow and you know, there's a massive default cycle, let's say it happens, how does your book fare? The answer is the demand for the commodity does not shift at all. The supply of the commodity probably gets constrained. Yeah. And yes, we own some pre-cash flow development assets, and they need to raise capital, build the mine, get into production. Yeah. So don't get me that's wrong. That's where your risk That will be. be challenged. Mm -hmm. That being said, they're going to come into production at a commodity that's significantly higher, right? Because the answer is it'll be more constrained, there'll be more of a mismatch. And so these are pre-production assets today. It's not like we're worried about their margin. 
they're going to be underwritten off of a base that's $100, not $70. Well, this is what, like, like, we have some of the most sophisticated at the asset level real estate investors that aren't, like, trading XLRE. But yeah. they're in the real estate market today, and they're, like, they know what they're buying, and they don't mind because once we come out of it on the other side, they're like, I know exactly what that thing's going to return. I know I, I don't mind paying a higher cost of capital on that. Yep. You know, that's how you invest in real estate is in that down cycle. Um, so I, I think that this is, uh, well, certainly a heck of a lot more interesting than I thought my long, my, my, like I said, it's, well, it's okay for me to not know. <laughs> well, it's okay. And, like, and we, we talk to people all the time and they say, well, what if the end result is I just want to buy URA? I'm fine with that. Yeah, more passive capital in my market is good for somebody that's super focused on it. I think I think if you're not going to focus on the asset level, owning an ETF is probably the right move, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're never going to be able to do the right amount of diligence on these single names. Um, Ninety-five percent of the folks that own single names in our market are hedge funds that have a two percent position and spend two percent of the time and retail, yeah. and that's okay. Like, but my ability to compete with both those pools of capital, they tend to get. Um, that tend to sell at the wrong time or buy at the wrong time, when something's hyper-volatile, mm -hmm. that's how we make money, right? We awesome. want the volatility. We want it to draw down 30% so it can rip 50 because we're going to be able to move our book around that and over time hopefully make more money. That's great. I love that. Yeah. Um, and now I also know why I'm not going to rip around in single names because I have to compete on the bid ask against <laughs> you. All right. So <laughs> thank you for not only just like educating everyone, but... Um, love to come back. That was yeah, fun. The, uh, the, 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 the best part about this investing someone is like I never know where it's going to go. I never know who I'm going to meet. I know what I'm long or short, which is kind of like finds, you know, finds sources. And yeah. uh, you've turned out to be a, an awesome source. So, yeah. so, so thank you. We'll do it again. All right. Thanks. Appreciate it. He is, I mean, uh, how good is that guy? I mean, if you want to, uh, if you want to find somebody else or actually p ping me, send me a tweet. Tell me who's better at nuclear than who you just heard. Art Hyde and his partner doing a really good job. Don't forget to check out HedgeEye.com to get more actionable investing insights from our team of more than 40 research analysts. And check us out on Twitter at our handle, at HedgeEye. This presentation is informational only. None of the information contained herein constitutes an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security or investment vehicle, nor does it constitute investment recommendation or legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice by HedgeEye or any of its employees, officers, agents, or guests. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. This content is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. Hedge is not responsible for errors and accuracies or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual expressing those opinions and conclusions and are intended solely for the use of Hedgeye subscribers and the authorized recipients of the content. All investments entail a certain degree of risk and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information contained herein is protected by United States and foreign copyright laws as intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient. Access must be provided directly by Hedgeye. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited. For more detail, please refer to the terms of service at hedgeye.com slash terms of service.